church. Um, you know, today for worship, um, uh, you know, how the how the um, the points, the thoughts that were being shared, the Lord was just knitting it together, right? We could all feel it, right? We went through a bit of history of Israel. We went through our condition as sinners, and then we went into the aspect of who Jesus is and the gospel that we truly enjoy. Greetings to you all in the precious name of our Lord and um, Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, Edwin, thank you, for, um, thank you for reading the scripture out for us. Um, Edwin read it from the NKJV, um, so that um, you know, the portion that we would be looking at today, um, you know, I personally felt that the NKJV was bringing it out a bit, a bit more better compared to the other translations, but enjoy reading God's word in whichever translation, okay? Now, we can open our Bibles to Luke 19. Luke 19, uh, 45 to 48, and Luke 20, 9 to 18. Do you remember what um, Jerry spoke last week? Those who attended the cell groups will definitely remember. But just, who, anybody remembers what was spoken last week? The triumphant entry of Jesus into, into Jerusalem, right? And we had the opportunity of studying that in our cell groups. Um, and, uh, you know, if any one of our dear ones sitting here are not part of a cell group, we would encourage you to please be part of it. This gives you an opportunity to break down the scripture a bit more further and to study it together as a community. In our Thursday cell group, we truly enjoyed there were multiple other points adding to what Jerry had shared that we were able to learn together. So we would encourage you to do that. You know, from today's passage, we realized that um, Jesus has begun the final week of his earthly life. And there are controversies brewing in Jerusalem. It's getting a bit hostile. In a few days, he will be put to death. If we look at the background and the setting... Um, you know, historians say that this could probably probably be like a Tuesday, okay? And uh, it was on Monday that he entered the city to the cries of Hosanna. He presented himself to Israel as the one and true king. And they think probably there would have been tens and thousands of people in this, in this journey or in this parade. And they were calling out what? They were calling out that he's coming in the name of the Lord the son of David, the heir to the throne, the Messiah, the anointed one. You know, when we study scripture, look at the parallel passages. And Jerry mentioned this last time. In Mark 11, verse 11, there's an interesting point mentioned over there. It says that the celebration ended at the temple because it was late. And then he returned to Bethany to spend the night with his friends in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But you saw what Jesus did? And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So what did he do? He, he had looked around at all the things. Jesus did a bit of a survey that evening in that temple. And he was ready for the next day. It's going to be an explosive day. It was no normal day the next day. Now, just a glimpse about, um, yeah, just a glimpse about this temple. Um, you saw this section, yeah. So this section and that section, okay. That's the Gentile courtyard. This is the setting 
of what's going to happen in this passage which we're going to look at. And Jesus enters as everybody around. Now, just a little bit of an idea about, you know, uh, about what's happening around. You know, it's Passover time, right? And some historical records say there would be approximately 2 million Jews gathering from different places. There were religious groups gathering for the pilgrimage, pilgrimage, and they would be accommodating people to stay. There were also true believers of Jesus who were gathering. There were foreign synagogues in and around these areas, okay, in and around these areas, who used to accommodate people who also came from other countries. There were also wealthy Jews who had, you know, homes Airbnb, you know, all your rooms, all that was used even for that time so that people could come and stay. They used to rent out their homes like how people do now, right? And Jerusalem also became a tent city. Nobody was allowed access into the temple, but there would have been tents all across the place. And it also came to be known as the tent city. Where did Jesus and his disciples stay? Where did they stay? Bethany, right? He went down to Bethany, and if you look at the map, they went to Bethany, and probably Jesus came back the next day. We move on um, to our passage for today. Luke 19, 45 to 48. It says that Jesus went into the temple. This is the next day, brothers and sisters, okay? This is the next day. And he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer. My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to him. You know, in Mark, it mentions, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But for who all? For all nations. That's interesting. For all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. Just breaking this passage up a bit, you know, um, I just want us to focus about what Jesus is actually doing here. He goes into the temple with authority his divine mission as king and this is an unbelievable event you know he demonstrates to people that he's truly god's king god's true messiah god's eternal son they saw him as the ultimate liberator right they were looking at him as to liberate them from what the roman empire right to free them militarily politically socially and economically but jesus enters the temple and he attacks what is happening in the heart of the temple. He attacks the heart of Judaism. He attacks the soul of the nation. He attacks the most corrupt of all things that is happening in this, so, yeah, in this temple. He's attacking the very heart of Judaism and addresses the fake religion that is happening right in the midst of it. The temple of God was desecrated, dishonored, and blasphemed. You know, he started his ministry in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. How did he start? Do you remember? He did his first assault in the temple. He made a scourge of whips. And what did he do? He drove away the people who were 
selling the sheep and the oxen. He threw the coins of the people and he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. George Lucas of Star Wars would have got scared if Jesus made this statement. Okay, a house of merchandise. Just keep that in mind. You know, just imagine merchandises that come out out of different institutions now these days. And his disciples remembered what is mentioned in Psalm 69 verse 9. It says, zeal for your house consumes me. You know, now what Jesus did, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Gentile court area was very unique. Why did Jesus get upset about what was happening? I just want you to go back to the temple image. Why was Jesus so upset about what was happening here? What was the activity that was happening here? Brothers and sisters, it became a business center. It became commercial street into 10 times probably. What was the business about? Why did people come there to offer sacrifices? Right Now to, to offer sacrifices, what do you need? Animals, sheep, goats, doves, okay? Um, and you need also things that would you know, complement these things, right? Now, this was known as the court of Anas also, the bazaar of Anas. Anas and Caiaphas, the high priests, the chief priests. And they, in fact, ran this operation within the temple. And they got a huge percentage of the commission. So, kaching. Money going to where? into the pockets of the chief priest and high priest. There was also corrupted priestly inspections. Like, I'm just going to use a few names here, okay? Lisa wants to offer sacrifices. Lisa brings in a sheep, okay? And uh, Joby would inspect it, and it'll be the perfect sheep, because uh, Lisa is raising it up, right? Lisa knows it. But Joby would say, mm -mm. Okay, it would not qualify for the sacrifice. Now, because Joby, the high priest, would be saying it does not qualify. Now, where do you have to buy your next sheep from? From Joby's D-Mart. You know, and there would be some excellent sheep over there. And Lisa would have to probably spend 10 times more the cost to buy that sheep out of Joby's D-Mart. You saw how corrupted they were? And the money went back into their own pockets. There was also Thomas Cook, money lenders. You know, where people from other countries, you could come there, trade the exchanges, and there was a percentage cut that they used to make, and it goes back into the pockets of the chief priest and high priest. You know, Jesus was so passionate about God's house and what happened in the house of God. He says, this is my house. That's such a powerful say. This is my house. It gives me goosebumps to say that. My house. And you've made it a den of thieves. Now you get it? Why it's a den of thieves? It's truly a den of thieves. Now Jesus was passionate about God's house and the importance of true worship to happen in the temple. And John 4 verses 23 says, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Jesus is more concerned about people's relationship to God. Jesus' divine mission as King. Second is Jesus' divine authority. 
he did not hold back his authority in the temple area. He was not scared of anybody over there. He began to cast out those who were selling. Matthew says he overthrew the tables of the money changers. Just imagine Jesus. People would have got scared. He was physically so strong. Jesus doing all of this, people would have been jaw dropped to find out this compassionate, merciful, divine teacher or prophet, as some of them call, is now cleaning up this entire temple. And he did that alone. He did that alone. Mark 11 verse 16 says, He wouldn't allow any man to carry anything through the temple. He, the divine king, was putting the order of business in the temple. Nobody could, in current day terms, mess around with him there. How does one person empty the place? Jesus' divine authority, what power, what strength, what authority and what a stunning thing to do to attack Israel, attack the temple and not attack Israel's enemies. First Peter 4 verses 17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Keep this verse in mind. For the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God. And it begins with us first. And then you can read the rest of the um, passage. In respect to what Jesus would see when he comes into our churches. In respect what Jesus would see when he comes into our study groups, our ministries, our homes, our missions, our family lives. What would Jesus address without, with his divine authority? You know, we see him as such a sweet, kind Jesus, which he truly is. But his divine authority is something that we will not be able to stand in front of him. He is the divine judge. The other aspect we can see from this passage is Jesus' commitment to the divine scripture. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den or a den of thieves. Jesus, in fact, quotes two Old Testament scriptures. One out of Isaiah and one out of Jeremiah. He says very clearly, this is God's house. First of all, it's my house. Two, this is God's house. You know, God's house or the temple, as you see it, is a place where men and men through the sacrifices came to commune with God. It was a place of prayer. Prayer was a very essence of worship. Dear ones, if any one of you are falling asleep, please have the freedom to just go wash your face and come back. But we need to look out for our neighbors as well, right? So your elbows can do a little bit of helping with each other as well, okay? Uh, you know, we're one family, so help out each other, yeah? And, um, you know, in prayer, you commune with God, personally and corporately. In worship, you exalt God, you honor God, you glorify God, you confess your sins to God, and you repent. That was what the temple was actually designed for. It was not designed for business. It was not designed for religious practices. It was not designed for traditions. It was designed for a place to be a place of prayer. That's why Jesus says in Isaiah 56, that's why a scripture says in Isaiah 56 verse 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. A sanctuary of worship, a place of devotion, of meditation, of quietness, of brokenness, confession and praise. It was turned to just the opposite. 
You remember, brothers and sisters, 1 Kings 8, 28 to 30, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed a prayer, Lord, when any request is offered from this temple, that you would hear us. You would hear us. And you may hear the supplication of your servant and your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive, is what he said. Psalm 27 verse 4 says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I may seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord for all my days and behold the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. Jesus was saying, as you've turned this holy place into a worship place for thieves and for robbers, you've turned this entire entity into something else. You know, if Jesus was to come back today, um, do you think that he would attack the garments of this world? Just think about it. Or would he attack the, the institutions and various other things? I feel that he would come right and look at the, probably the New Testament church and see what kind of dens have we made? What kind of people probably have we become? You're getting it? He'll come and examine us with his divine judgment, his divine mission, and it's also with his divine commitment to scripture. First Corinthians 3 verse 16, I would say that, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you? Verse 17, caution, God will destroy anyone who destroys his temple. And we would be coming into that uh, a little later. But at the same time, Jesus demonstrates his compassion. You know, there was a huge ruckus that happened at the temple. People were scared. People ran for their lives. But there was also a group that was watching with what authority he was doing all of this. But in the midst of that, brothers and sisters, there was compassion being demonstrated. The gospel was being demonstrated. Luke 19, um, 47 to 48, it mentions that um, as, and he was teaching daily in the temple, Okay, after this exercise, just imagine there's debris all over. You know, I couldn't, I don't think I would ever be able to sit there. Some of you who know me, there's chaos, there is doves, maybe all these animals got scared. They would have pooped all over the place also. We don't know, right? There's money lying around, there's broken stuff lying around. There would have been, you know, the smell of straw, fodder, you know, at the same time, that thing with, mixed with the perfume, it would have been, you know, it would just been chaos for someone's mind. But Jesus sat there and he taught. He taught in the midst of the chaos. What was he teaching? In fact, he was preaching the gospel. In the midst of that chaos, he was preaching the gospel. Salvation, forgiveness. He was talking about heaven. He was talking about eternal life. You know, the beauty after the ugliness. You know, for a few days, the desecration of the temple was stopped because God visited the temple with divine authority as a divine king through the divine scripture. He dominated the house of God with compassion, teaching daily, just putting a few days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Till the day of his death. You know, Matthew beautifully says that even the blind and the lame 
came there and healing was happening there within the midst of it. Brothers and sisters, it is compassionate to preach the gospel. You know, if there's any one of you who do not know Jesus who sits here, and if any one of you shares the gospel, they're not trying to convert you. Please don't. Nobody wants to convert. We, we humans who are sinful cannot convert anyone. What do we convert us to? But, but what Jesus has done in our lives is what we want to tell. You remember um, three weeks back, four weeks back, we had the seven baptisms and you heard the journeys of our dear ones. It is compassionate to preach the gospel. Every church member, every CBF member, and next week, God willing, next Saturday, we're having an opportunity where the gospel will be preached. Think about it. Don't lift your hands. How many of us have at least attempted to invite two people? Attempted. Think about it. If you are passionate about the gospel, be compassionate about those who have not heard it. Who have not heard it. Please, husbands and wives, please, young men and women, the teens, all of you, even the, you know, the school kids, invite at least two people to hear the gospel because that's exactly what we need to do. Isn't that true? Do we agree? We have to. We have to. It is compassionate to preach the way of God. It is compassionate to demonstrate the gospel. It is compassionate to warn people against false leaders, heretics and hypocrites. It is compassionate to warn them about divine judgment. And you know what people were doing? They were hanging on to his very words. They were hanging on to his very words. What a, in the, in the midst of that ugliness, what beauty, right? What beauty was there? You know, just some few takeaways for us and you can discuss this furthermore in your cell groups. First Peter 4 verses 17 and I've just put verses over here on this section. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. God is watching us, brothers and sisters. He's calling us to put spiritual and godly order in our churches, in our lives, in our homes, and even in our personal lives. Let's not get, let's not get caught up with traditional practices that look like worship and the knowledge of God that looks like worship. Let our true form of worship be like a sweet-smelling aroma to God. John 4 verses 23. God seeks true worshippers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. You know, if any one of you are coming to, to CBF to be a fan of Jesus, I like Jesus, man. He's so cool, yeah. You know, I like some of his teachings, especially that parable, especially what he did here. You know, God is not looking for fans. He's not. He's not. He's bored with fans. Because, you know, he's compassionately reaching out to each one of you sitting here. And if any one of you raise your fist to him, you know, he can, you know, in his mercy, he will soon convert you into a worshiper. He will still call you and beckon you to be a worshiper. The other thing is that he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. If the Lord were to, inter inter you know, kind of scan through our lives, are we living as a temple of the living God? You know, First Corinthians, it's mentioned there. Now, would it anger him and consume him of what he sees, the dens and the thievery that happens when nobody sees? You know, what dens have you made in our churches? What dens? 
we made in our personal lives. Think about it. Discuss about it. You know, if you've made dents, you know, within our own lives and within our churches, God would destroy. God would. Let's not think that God is super compassionate and He's going to just completely shut His eyes. He would destroy us, but He will do it in His mercy. Let's also be zealous for the house of God. And Jesus says, it has consumed me. As we were talking about the temple of the living God, please keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that even though Jesus is perfect in love, he's also perfect in holiness. Jesus is perfect in kindness, but he's also perfect in judgment. He's perfect in compassion, and he's perfect in vengeance. He cannot tolerate unrighteousness or deceit. And if you refuse the offering of salvation, brothers and sisters, he can become the judge of your very life. Now let's move on to the next portion. Um, and now um, we would look at the parable okay, of the, the wine dressers. Now just, just before this portion, these chief priests and high priests, they were intently listening to Jesus not to study from the word or to understand that he is the way of life, but they were looking at how to, how to kill him. Yeah, you're right, Santosh, how to kill him. Okay. So they were asking, with what authority are you doing these things? And that's when Jesus narrates a very prophetic parable. And um, Edwin read through that parable. And then in this parable, I'm not going to go through the parable in detail. I just want you to, I just want to highlight, there's so many things we can learn from this parable. But keep, keep in mind that the owner comes to the vineyard to look for what? Fruit. He's coming for fruit because the vineyard belongs to him. Now, the, the, the wine dressers, they rejected the servants and all of them. Why? Because they wanted the inheritance to be theirs. They wanted to claim the inheritance, like exactly what they were doing in the temple. They wanted to run a business operations as, well, as the way that they wanted to. But then what does Jesus do? He will come and destroy those wine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now the man's simple explanation, simple explanation, the man who owns the land is, is God, okay, is God. Uh, the vineyard is Israel, you can see it in the Old, in the Old Testament um, um, chapters and also the lessons. The vine growers, the vine growers who was given to it was the religious leaders, in fact the high priest, the chief priest, and they had the responsibility to shepherd Israel or to tend to God's vineyard. The long journey is the Old Testament journey right from Genesis to where Jesus was. And in that journey, Jesus was revealing himself to them, right? Is the gospel present right from Genesis? And also in Revelation? Yeah, right across the gospel has been presented. Now, who are these servants and who are these slaves? Who do you think? Just a, just a guess. Yeah, the prophets, who answered that? Yeah, you're right, um, Danny. It is the prophets. The prophets who were sent by God time after time throughout the history of Israel to receive, because God wanted to receive righteous fruit. And they came and they tried to teach. And what did they do? They were rejected. They were hated. They were stoned. In fact, they were so, one or two of them were sawed in half and killed. That's why, brothers and sisters, Jerusalem is known as the city of the city that kills the prophets. Then God sent his only beloved son and in a few days time they're plotting up how to kill him. 
you know, finally, we know that the owner of the vineyard destroys the wine dressers and hands it over to the uh, hands over the vineyard to the new wine dressers so that he can truly receive the spiritual fruit. Again, going back and reiterating is God is the divine judge. The owner is looking for fruit. It says that in verse 16, he will come and destroy those wine dressers. Okay, I'm going to explain a bit more. Now, this parable also shows the deep corruption of human nature. God's judgment on the corruption of the systems and the practices that people do. Now, what will God do to these people? What would God do to the Pharisees, teachers, chief priests, high priests? You know, they, was, they were supposed to be the custodians of truth, right? What is God going to do, with, do to them? And in fact, today in our worship time, we actually touched on that. You remember the destruction of Jerusalem? The exiles? For 40 years, 30 AD to 70 AD, when Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, he wanted to quell uh, the Jews from their rebellion. And then starts the exile that continues to happen. You know, um, the number of Jews have died in exile. And then we know about the Holocaust that happened, right? The entire religious system, their traditional practices, their records, their priestly ancestor records, all destroyed. I do not know how true is this, but when I was reading a bit of a historical fact, we know that there are tribes in Israel. We know, right? We know. But the question is to us is, do they know from which tribe they are? Now through DNA and all of that, they are able to figure that out a bit. But there was a point where even the historical records were just born out, burned out. So they did not know. There was no history of where and who they were. You know, the original custodians of truth, the leader, leaders of Israel, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, who were supposed to give spiritual leadership and who were supposed to be the covenants of God that needed to be taught, they were those wine dressers and the judgment falls upon them. And I truly pray that that would never be of our case. Just imagine, just imagine the New Testament church, all of us, especially even our kids from Sunday school days, know so much of scripture, right? There's so much of scripture. The amount of sin that is probably present even in our churches is unbelievable. We can sin and yet take part from the table. I think, I hope you're getting what I'm saying, right? We are so, we are, we've got so used to the system that sometimes there is these dens that is within us that is functioning parallelly to what we are doing. Remember God truly judged him and Paul in Romans 9 verses 1 to 4 he mentions about Israel, you know, they were pertained, they, they've adopted the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises. This was who they were. They were a holy nation, a special nation. But because they were not custodians of God's word, they were rejected. Probably it's now a good time to do our elbow ministry a bit. Yeah, you can just, uh, everybody could just, you know, just extend a bit. Yep. Um, Everybody's back? Yeah, that's nice. The next point is, um, so one we looked at is God the divine judge from this parable. Some few takeaways from here and there because he's looking for good fruit. But God is also the divine restorer, the sustainer. And you know, that's the beauty of the gospel. 
um, and he gives, he takes the vineyard from these people and gives it to, he gives it to others, right? Interesting. He takes this vineyard, which the vineyard that he truly cares about, and he takes this vineyard from them and gives it to another group. You know, the, the parable itself shows about the amazing patience and the long-suffering of who our God is. You know, these people, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the high priests, they rejected the truth. And how do we know that? Because they also wanted to kill the son. This is a prophetical parable because in two days, that's exactly what they're going to do to Jesus. So Jesus is preaching the gospel to them and asking them to repent because he knows exactly what they're going to do in two, two to three days. Two days. They not only rejected the words of God, given um, through the prophets, now they're going to reject the Messiah himself. So he decides to give the vineyard to the care of others. Now what does that mean? New stewardship, new stewardship is given to a new set of people. Matthew 21 verses 43 um, says, Truly I say to you, this is what Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing what? Fruits of it. Jesus himself has said that. Now that's the worst case scenario you could ever imagine. From us now it's going to someone else and even the disciples struggle with this concept. You know, the transition of new leadership and the custodians of God's word started with the disciples themselves. Okay? They were a bunch of Galilean lowlifes. No training, no credentials, are not, you know, unschooled ordinary men. They became the custodians of God's kingdom. They became the custodians of God's redemptive plan. Luke 9 verses 1 to 16 says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power, and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So they departed, went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. You saw how the custodianship is now moved from the so-called pundits of, of, you know, the, of Judaism now to these normal, ordinary people. The other, the, you know, the transition. So we're looking at transition, okay? So here comes the disciples. Then you remember the 70 is appointed? 70 is appointed. Can we name at least one of the 70? Do we know at least one of the 70? Peter. Uh, Philip says, Peter. I couldn't find even one name of the 70 in Scripture. There were just no, no person mentioned no credentials to mention, just faithful disciples of Jesus. Luke 10 verses 1 to 3. And all these things, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 yards and sent them two by two before his face to every city and place where he himself was about to go. He says, I send you as lambs among the wolves. Who is the wolves? The chief priests, the Pharisees, the teachers of the Lord, the Sadducees. And the 70 sent out like lambs. 
you know, and in Matthew 13 verses 11, what a beautiful statement. He says that to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been granted. So from the disciples to the 70s, to the 70 and through the apostles. And then the transition happens. From the apostles, the, the, the New Testament church was born. God willing, uh, on, on 15th um, Jan, we're going to have our church plant happen. Yesterday we had a trial run. Many of our dear ones were there. You know, it is continuing. It is continuing. The custodianship is now given to the church. All the years, even through the persecuted church in the years to come, the church is going to be the custodian of God's word. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? How many of us come from a high priestly line? Hmm. How many of us see as teachers of the law, pharisaical, sadistical? I don't know if there's a word called sadistical, but I'm just saying is, you know, you know that, that you know, none of us, none of us are there. We are a bunch of Gentile low lives. I'll be honest. Redeemed and purchased by his blood. And we're custodians of God's word. Ephesians 2 verses 19 to 20 says, Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, whom the whole building being knitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You saw the transition? And that's us. Matthew 28 verses 18 says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Now you want to see who, who, you know, we realize that none of us qualify in those high priestly Pharisees, Sadducees. But you know what, where we qualify? Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he, gave, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You saw the beautiful transitions from the old wicked wine dresses. Not that we qualified in his mercy because he loves the vineyard. He loves the souls. He's looking for good fruit. It has been given to us to tend and to care for. You know, the elders, the pastors, the teachers of God's word are the new leaders of God's vineyard. They're the new wine growers, the new stewards, the new custodians of a new people of God and his word. Filled with the spirit of God, truly teaching of God's word and the preaching of the gospel, bearing fruits of righteousness and souls of men is added into the kingdom and the church of God grows. Second Timothy chapter 4. I'll give a simple example. Um, um, last week, um, two of our elders, Ravent and George Chan, along with Binyankal and Elsie Auntie. Binyankal, can you raise your hand? Um, can't see you. Ah, there you are. Elsie Auntie, just can you raise your hand? This is, any of you do not know them, you know, you should meet them, Sonia's parents. Um, last week, you know, as we continued on with their life, four of them went into the inner parts of Bihar. 50 kilometers away from Patna 
in the villages of Motipur, um, Bhaktiyarpur, correct? Yeah. And Muzaffarpur. You know, um, they forewent, and Ravind and Jorchan and Binyankar were able to teach up grassroots elders and evangelists to be sound in God's word. Custodianship, custodianship of God's word is now transitioned into the grassroots needs of the Indian local church. Amazing, right? Amazing. Why? So that the word of the Lord would be followed. People will experience the gospel and many would be added into his kingdom. You want to know more? Speak, please speak with uh, Binny Uncle and Ravent and George Shan. But I just want to bring an interesting point. Suddenly, suddenly, I'm just saying is suddenly in this message, we look super righteous now, no? We look like, the, you know, like we're worth investing in, yeah. You know, like, you know, you know, Jesus, good job, yeah. You know, sometimes we feel that, no? We feel that we, we have, we're, we're way too good that Jesus invested the gospel into us. But, you know, I just want to bring a point. You know, Jesus still loves Israel. He still has a heart for Israel. Yes, they were judged and the judgment still continues um, through Israel. But, you know, God also wants to restore Israel. So let's not think of ourselves too highly, but with sober mind. Note that this, I just want to note, I just want you to all know that, that this doesn't mean that Israel is rejected forever. Restoration of Israel is also in progress. Many Jews, many Jews and their families are experiencing the gospel. Okay, many Jews are coming to know the Lord. Revelation chapter 7 and 14, God selects 144,000 Jews. Now, I don't want to go into the details of it because, you know, I'm not a subject matter expert of Revelation. Um, but there you see that those who have been redeemed, right? 12,000 from every tribe. Now, they did not know probably from which tribe they would be called from. Jesus knows. And in this preparation, I came across a beautiful verse from Zechariah 8. It says, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. In those days, ten men from different nations and languages of this world will clutch at the sleeve of one Jew. And what will they clutch the sleeve of one Jew and say? Please let us walk. Is with you. Amazing, right? How his heart still wants to restore the lives of probably Jewish people who have always rejected him. Now he's beckoning back to them. As we come to a close, the final point, when we look into 20. Luke chapter 20, 17 to 19. You know, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And whoever falls on the stone will be broken. And on whomever it will falls, it will grind him into powder. The moment they heard this, they knew that Jesus was talking about them. The judgment is going to be done. Now, there's, a, um, there is a, there's a saying of a, 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 of a rabbi. Um, says that he gives an example. If a stone or a rock falls on a pot, what will break? Pot will break. If the pot falls on a stone, what will break? Pot will break. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Okay? Jesus, the chief cornerstone. You know, a cornerstone has to be perfect in every direction. The top the bottom, the sides. The cornerstone sets every angle for the building to be stable and to be built upon. 
Jesus is saying, because you rejected the cornerstone, the cornerstone has all authority to reject you. The cornerstone you wanted to kill, and you will kill, resurrection, the beauty of resurrection, I will be back and I will judge you all the more. First Peter 2, verses 6 to 8. Uh, I like how you know Peter brings it out. He says, The chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, Jesus was very straightforward with them. You know, there were, it was a message of love, but it was very direct. It was with warning, and he also urged them to repent. Till the last days of his life, in two days' time, he preached repentance. You know, rejecting Jesus Christ is the most tragic thing the people of Israel did. Do we agree? Yeah, the most tragic thing. Now let's flip it. Rejecting Jesus. If any one of you do not know Jesus, rejecting Jesus is the most tragic thing that you can do. He will pulverize you. Trust me, I'm sorry, but uh, he will destroy you. You know, even if he falls in his mercy, in his mercy, he reveals himself to you. Do not collide with Jesus. It's not worth it. Do not try to prove that he's not God. Do not try to condemn him and judge him and write posts about who, you know, about all that, that, you know, that's not who he is. Do not mess with the cornerstone. You know, we, the church, the holy nation, um, is built on the perfect cornerstone. Not because of because we are perfect, it's because He is perfect. As we come to a close, as we come to a close, you know, what are some of the learnings that we can take away? As one is, be a good steward of God's word. First Timothy 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay, stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and for the salvation of those who hear you. You know, I would encourage you is that when you want to test out the word, go back to the word of God. Just go back to the word of God and test it. Be a good steward of God's word. You know, we desire, we desire that you would be committed. You would be a spirit-filled wine dresser or a tenant in God's church. Not by feelings, not by traditions, not by a group of people coming together, not for personal gains. Avoid all lies, deception, and guard the truth. You know, God is also gracious to the Gentile church. Gentile church is like us, the New Testament church. But the New Testament church has slowly started to also build itself like a den of thieves sometimes. You hear about the prosperity gospel? Yeah? Classic. An all-exclusive church for some people? Classic. Feel-good churches? Classic. You know, there's false doctrines? superstitions, and also some elect few are allowed in some churches according to some practices. And even we as a church, as CBA, we have nothing to boast. We have nothing to boast. Even as we prayerfully think about a church plant, brothers and sisters, we urge you as elders, don't think too highly of ourselves. Do not think that CBF has arrived. Do not think that CBF is doing all that's well. We are, we are just by His grace, just by His mercy. Let's never forget about this. We are debtors. CBF is debted to God for His innumerable mercies. 
Isn't that true? I'm just going to repeat this. CBF is debted to God for his innumerable mercies. Let's be grounded. Let's be earth. Let's bless and rejoice along with the church plan that's happening. It is for the glory of God, for the extension of God's kingdom. Let's be good stewards of our God-given responsibilities. Any of our responsibilities here, and soon the plant will start, any of your responsibilities, like don't hold it like, you know, it is your little kingdom. Please don't. There's carnality in that. If any one of you hold any people or ministry or even yourself too close to your heart, it's carnality. It's sin. It's sin. It's enmity against God. You know, Matthew 23 verses 15 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you know what you do? You make him twice as much a son of hell. Is what Jesus is saying. One convert. Heaven, sea, you know, you took all. And then you find one guy and you make him a son of hell. Sometimes we also have these little ambitious goals, right? Isn't that true? Yeah, we do have. You know, God has called us not to produce sons of hell, but to produce sons of God. Produce fruits of righteousness. The fruit God would approve of. Abide in him to bear God-approving fruit. You know, I like Ephesians 5 verse 9. It says, for the fruit of the light consists all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The last one is turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. This is not only meant for people who do not know Jesus. This is even meant for us. Because he's the chief cornerstone of our faith. If there's any one of you sitting here who do not know Jesus, um, he's the most important choice that you can ever make in your life. It's not about which college you're going to go. It's not about um, your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It is not about who you're going to marry. It's not about the home you just probably invested. It's not about the car that you're going to buy. He's more important than anything of those. Do not second him for those choices. Jesus is the most important choice a person can make in their life. And we must never flatter ourselves as we close it. God doesn't get angry. God is bindasya. God is, God is, I know God. He doesn't get angry, you know. Like that's how we kind of connect. But you know what? Hebrews 12 verses 29 says that even though he's a God of infinite grace and compassion, he's a consuming fire. His spirit will always not strive with men. There will be a day, if any one of you are holding yourself against knowing Jesus, there will be a day when his patience will probably run out with you. Don't wait till then. Do not wait till then. Because he's the true judge. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you submit to him? Embrace him as your Lord and Savior? Or are you choosing to collide into him? Because if you collide into him, if you rebel against him, you don't stand a chance. We don't stand a chance. There's no way around it. Thank you for... um, for listening, even for me, this is a journey of learning the Word of God along with you. Um, there are areas, even in my life, that I'm also learning to clean up as well. Okay, may we bear good fruit on what we've heard today, and may we allow the Holy Spirit to clear out the debris of our wickedness and live a holy life, 
righteous and acceptable in the eyes of God. Remember, you know, he's a judge. He comes with all authority. He speaks his word very clearly to us, but yet he shows compassion. You know, Brother Yun of the, you know, initially when he had written this, when he was part of the underground church in China, he says that the true church is not an organization controlled by the rules of men, but a holy collection of living stones. I love that. With Jesus Christ as a cornerstone. Let that be our prayer. Let us also represent ourselves to the world as a holy collection of God's redeemed people building his church up. Shall we close with a, with a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for um, you being in our midst. Um, crooked, uh, weary, um, unstable people like us that you would call us as your living stones, Lord. Holy and acceptable and righteous in your eyes. Not because of who we are, but just because of your mercy that you allow us to rest upon the perfect stone, the chief cornerstone of our faith. Um, we also, as we heard about what had happened at the temple and also about the prophetic parable of the vineyard, Lord, um, we are no much different from them, Lord. And yet in your mercy, you've appointed us to be the custodians of your word. We pray, Lord, that the church, including CBF, Lord, and soon, Lord, both our plants, Lord, will be true to your word and teaching your word and preaching your word, Lord. Not looking at the convenience of man, but, Lord, looking at your righteousness and being true custodians of it, Lord. We pray, Lord, that, that even we would do it with the authority that the Lord has given to us, Lord. Lord, we also pray for any one of our dear ones who are sitting here who have been fleeing away from you, Lord, and are choosing to probably just reject you, Lord. Have mercy. Have mercy. We pray that you in your compassion would draw them towards you, Lord. There's beauty, Lord, after the ugliness, Lord. That they would set their lives on the perfect cornerstone, confessing their sins and turning on to you, Lord. That you would build a holy, um, a holy living stones out of this dear individuals, Lord. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is precious. Help us to be not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Help us to live righteous and acceptable in the eyes of God till the day that you return. We bless this time and be with us as a church as we continue on for, with a few other things as well. In Jesus Christ's most precious name we pray. Amen.